everyone. Welcome back to Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery and General Podcast. I am Al, and today is going to be another one of my historical gaming episodes. You know, it's been a while since I've done one of those, and the theme behind these episodes is, you know, usually in Dungeons & Dragons, many of the settings out there have a Western European feel to them. Usually they're loosely based off of, uh, you know, the, off of uh, England or Ireland, Germany, France, you know, again, mostly Western Europe. And then, of course, there have been a few attempts to expand into Asian cultures, uh, usually with D&D, with the Oriental Adventures. It's mostly uh, Japanese-inspired with a little bit of Chinese in there as well. So, for my historical gaming episodes, what I do is I research a culture that doesn't fall into one of those two different areas, and I try to think of some ways to how you know inspire you to set a campaign either based in that historical time period or uh you know maybe not necessarily in that historical period but maybe you want to set up a culture in your own game world that is loosely based on that culture so i've done quite a few of those uh, i've done some on uh you know egypt i've done uh, the Oceania, Australia, Thailand, the Philippines. So I'm going to try to do a few more of these episodes because I actually do enjoy doing the research. So today we're going to take a look at India and we're going to hopefully give you some ideas on how you might want to base a campaign either in India or someplace inspired by that country. So, just a quick announcement before we begin. Welcome to Bone Thrower's Theater. Nah, it's not that kind of show. It's an RPG actual play podcast. My name is Jordan, and I'm joined by our fun-loving cast. This is Aaron. Jeff here. Johnny is my name. And I'm Jeremy. And what we do is dive in and play various tabletop RPG systems and games, such as Mini Six, Fiasco, Inspectors, Monster of the Week, Fate, and more. But no matter the rule set or setting, some pretty intense storytelling hits the fan. So whether you like epic fantasy, adventure, comedy, sci-fi, horror, or just horrifically bad puns, we've got something to feast your imagination on. Listen to our full episodes and more at BoneThrowersTheater.com. And may the bones fall ever in your favor. And we're back. So India is a fascinating place as it has been populated for thousands of years. And not only that, it's gone through a wide variety of different culture shifts. And it almost became kind of a melting pot because you had traders from Europe, the Middle East, and I think they've even had traders uh, from other places in the Orient, as well as uh, invasions and conflicts with these different cultures. Now, I, before I begin, I want to give the mispronunciation disclaimer. I probably am going to be mispronouncing a lot of these, uh, the words in, I think the language is Hindi. I'm not exactly sure, but I'll probably be mispronouncing them. So bear with me here. Now, as with any sort of historical campaign, you want to pick a historical period to base it in, because that's really going to determine what types of armor and weapons and equipment your characters will be able to have access to. So there are several major periods in Indian history. First, there's the Vedic period, and this goes from 1500 to 500 BCE. This is named after the Vedas, and these are Hindu holy texts that were passed down orally for probably hundreds, maybe even into the thousands of years. So this is a very much a pre-urban society. The second major period is the 
urbanization period from 600 to 200 BCE. And this is when we started to see some of the first written texts appear called the Upanishads. Again, and these are another important uh, text in the Hindu religion. And it's around this time we start to see the rise of kingdoms. From around 322 to 185 BCE, India would be unified into a single state under the Maurya Empire. Now, many people are familiar with the Middle Ages. Uh, Usually we think of this in terms of a European context. And India also had a similar period from around 300 BCE to 1300 CE. And this is often called Classical India. So I would recommend that this would probably be a pretty good time to set your campaign as it's going to fall into a, at least from a technology standpoint, it's going to be very similar to what we see in a lot, many D&D campaigns. Medieval India is a period from 1200 to 1526 CE. And this is when India began to fight many battles against Muslim armies that came from the West. Then, the next major period is the early modern period, which goes from about 1526 to 1858 Common Era. And this is when we saw the end of the previous empires, and then the country became came under control of the British. And then after that is the modern period. And here we saw a transition from British rule to independence, which happened shortly after World War II. Now, it's important to talk about Hinduism whenever we're discussing India, as that's the uh, Hinduism, I believe, is the largest religion in that country, though you will actually find practitioners of many of the other major world religions there. Uh, India is also the birthplace of Buddhism. And not only that, you will also find Christians and Muslims there as well, in addition to, you know, some of the other smaller religions. Now, in regards to Hinduism, when I was working on my degree in religious studies, I didn't take any classes strictly devoted to Hinduism. So I'm just going to be skimming the surface of this religion. Most of my my knowledge of Hinduism comes from my classes like my world religions class. And then we also, I also remember we talked about it in a class I took called religion and ethics. And then, you know, appeared in a couple other classes I took as well. Now, Hinduism is the world's oldest established religion. It was originally known as Santana Dharma, which means something to the effect of eternal path. So, what is the purpose or the ultimate spiritual goal of Hinduism? The purpose is to reunite the Atman with Brahman by following the Dharma as determined by one's karma to achieve moksha from samsara. Got all that? Good. Let's continue. Okay, let's go back and explain some of those terms as they are actually quite relevant. Now first, Atman is the soul. And Brahman is the ultimate reality. It, the, some people call it a supreme god. And everything, any living thing, is an extension of Brahman. So that would include the other gods as well as you and me and the guy next door. So pretty much anything with an Atman is an extension of Brahman. Now the next concept we talk about is Dharma. And this is the right way to live. Now as described in the Bridharayanka Upanishad, and I probably totally mispronounced that, nothing is higher than Dharma. The weak overcomes the stronger by dharma, as over a king. Truly, that dharma is the truth. Therefore, when a man speaks the truth, they say he speaks the dharma. 
And if he speaks Dharma, they say, he speaks the truth, for both are one. Now, karma is best thought of as the consequences of one's actions. Now, you might be familiar with the term karma uh, if you've ever studied or uh, maybe if you're a practitioner of Wicca or if you're into New Age philosophy. They usually describe karma as, well, what comes around goes around. So basically that means if I do something nice for you, then eventually something nice is going to happen to me. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're the one that's going to do that nice thing for me. But because I took the time to do an act of kindness for you, somewhere down the line when I'm in need assistance, someone else, maybe you, maybe a complete stranger, maybe my next-door neighbor, is going to do an act of kindness for me. On the other hand, bad actions will bring about bad karma. So if I do something mean or cruel to you, eventually that's going to come and that's going to bite me in the ass. So again, you might not necessarily be the one doing the bad thing to me, but like I said, someone else will eventually. Now the way I understand karma in uh, Hinduism, it's not necessarily instant consequence of your actions. Personally, I've always understood karma to be more something like duty because it has to do with the caste system, which we'll be talking about in just a moment. Uh, So essentially, karma is gained through thoughts, actions, words, and actions performed under instructions. Now, the reason you want to get good karma is because that leads to Moksha, or liberation from samsara. Now, samsara, you may recall that I talked a bit about this many episodes ago when I did my episode on Nirvana and the Seven Heavens as presented in AD&D First Edition, Manual of the Plains, where samsara is this cycle of rebirth. Think of it like the board game Shoots and Ladders, where, you know, it'll, like, if you've ever played that game, uh, you know what it's like, and in case you've never played Shoots and Ladders, what you do is you're moving along the board, and then eventually you get to a point where it'll show you're a person doing something, and then they're either going up a ladder, or they're going down a chute. Uh, For example, one of the little pictures I remember is there's one of a girl, or a boy, I forgot which, a child rescuing a cat from a tree. And then that's a ladder because you're doing a good deed and you go up a few spaces. And it shows the, the child now has a new pet. On the other hand, there's another one where it shows a child pulling a cat's tail. And since you're doing something bad, that's a shoot. So it takes you backwards on the game board. And it shows this child now. He's got a scratch on his cheek because, again, he was being mean to the cat. So basically, until you achieve liberation from samsara, you are bound to it. So it doesn't matter if you're a person or even a god. You are still bound to samsara. So again, go back and listen to my episode on Nirvana if you want a little bit more uh, detailed explanation of samsara. As I said, it's a concept that's found in both Hinduism and Buddhism. Another aspect of Hinduism is the caste system. And this is something where I think it could be challenging in a D&D game or a role-playing setting because in theory, it would limit what character class that you're character can choose or what skills he might learn. So the four major castes are first at the the top, the Brahmins. These are the priests, scholars, and teachers. Below them are the Kshiriyas. These are the rulers, the warriors, and the administrators. 
below that are the Vaishyas. These are the agriculturists, you know, the, the merchants, uh, the farmers. And then below them are the Shudras. These are the laborers and service providers. So these forecasts correspond to the mouth, arms, thighs, and feet of Brahmin. Now, unfortunately, there's also a belief in a fifth caste called the untouchables. Now, one video I watched while researching for this had an interview with a man who was considered part of the untouchable caste. His family tended a sacred fire that was needed to light any funeral pyres, yet people would be afraid to come in contact with him even though he had this job that was important. So I think it's one of those things that can be hard for uh, you know, Westerners to really understand. Uh, and another um, example, and that's this I remember from my class I took about religion and ethics, we discussed you know, each of the religions and then thought about some of the good aspects and some of the bad aspects of it. And one of the things we talked about in Hinduism is the unfortunate thing about the caste system is it almost allows, encourages discrimination. Because remember, supposedly you're, the caste you're in is because of your actions. So in theory, if you were a Brahmin, the highest caste, you did you worked hard you did something to deserve it and if you were a shudra one of the lower classes or an untouchable again in theory it's because you either didn't work hard enough in your previous life as hindus do believe in reincarnation or you did something really bad and thus you deserve being where you are and from what I understand, the caste system is no longer official in India, but it's still one of those things that people still pay some attention to, and it can lead to instances of discrimination. Now, one of the more positive aspects of Hinduism, though, is they do tend to be very tolerant of other religions, and also they don't really see the need to go out and convert people. I remember in one of my world religions classes, when we were doing the unit on Hinduism, there was a video, I think the series was called The Long Search, where he was taking a look at you know different world religions. And he was talking to a Hindu woman, and he's like, well, do you think that me as a Christian, that I'm on the wrong path? And the woman's response was, yes, but don't worry, you'll get it right eventually because there's this belief that eventually all in Atman will be reunited with Brahman. And this is also where there's a difference between Hinduism and Buddhism, even though they do have some similar beliefs. Hindus believe that you can't go through all your bad karma in one life, that you, you have to go through all these different lives before you can finally uh, achieve liberation. Whereas Buddhists believe that with the right effort and right mindset, you you can go through your bad karma and earn enough good karma in a single lifetime. So that's a little bit about Hinduism. Again, very brief. There are different uh, schools of thought within Hinduism, but we're not. It's not really. I'm not really going to go into those. So let's move on to how you might set a D&D campaign, or really any role-playing game campaign in uh, India. So we're going to focus mostly on a D&D or fantasy type game. Now, like with all my historical gaming episodes, of course, the fighter is going to be pretty easy to convert, as they're just someone who fights. Really, the only limitation is what you know, what time period you're setting the campaign in. Now, there are several different climates and geographies in India. And, you know, for example, as in northern India, it's a bit more temperate. As you start to move into the Himalaya Mountains, it gets progressively colder. But the country also has 
jungles, deserts, mountains, river valleys, and plains. So it's likely that through the course of history, Indian fighters or warriors would have developed unique strategies and tactics based on the environment that they were in. I couldn't really find anything specific as to what might be a specific type of fighter, but one thing that would be actually quite interesting is an elephant rider. As the the Indians did use elephants for warfare, not only did they develop armor for the elephants, but they also developed sword-like attachments for the animal's tusks. So that might be an interesting prestige class, something to work your way up to where uh, you could become a, again, one of these elephant riders. The ranger. Again, a bit trickier, I think. Um, again, I couldn't really find any historical or legendary uh, counterparts for a ranger. I, I suppose if you are running a strictly historical campaign with as few fantasy elements as possible, you know, you could still keep the ranger as either a military scout or uh, someone who just lives off the land. Now, as far as the next warrior class, the Paladin, goes, the closest I could find would actually be a type of a warrior who follows the Sikh religion. And that's called the... San Supai, or Saint Soldier. Now, this religion didn't come along until later in the 15th century. So if you are going to allow a character like this in the campaign, you're either going to have to set your campaign at the appropriate year, or you're going to have to do some serious uh, anachronisms. Or again, I suppose you could get it to work if you're just using a game world inspired by India as opposed to in the India we know from Earth. Now, the Sikh religion was founded by a person who was originally a Hindu. And Sikhism teaches a belief in a single creator, the divine unity of mankind, selfless service towards others, and the right of all to be prosperous. Now, the San Supai I was mentioning is actually an ideal in this religion, so not everyone who follows the Sikh religion is necessarily a San Supai. It's something that you have to, I believe, be formally initiated into. Now, this ideal of the saint soldier came into the being as, as a result of religious persecution. In 1606, Guru Arjan selected a man named Guru Hargobind as his successor. Now, shortly after Guru Arjan was executed, as he refused to convert to Islam. So, after Guru Hargobind took over, he realized that there was always going to be a need to be ready for physical combat and encouraged his followers to study martial arts. However, the San Supai did not just stand up for the protection of his fellow Sikh. The saint soldier also sought to stand up for all who were being unfairly persecuted, regardless of their race, their religion, or their social status. Now this led to a military order being formed called the Kalasa, that formed in 1699. These individuals recognized the five Ks. First is Kesh, or uncut hair, and this symbolizes a respect for God's creation. Next is Kangha, and this is a wooden comb that represents discipline and cleanliness. Next is the Kara, which is a metal bracelet that represents unbreakable attachment to God. Also, it's symbolic because the circle has no beginning or no end. And again, in keeping with this uh, ideal that you always have to be ready for combat, it could also be used as an improvised weapon if the need arose. 
Next is the kirpan, and this is a curved sword or dagger. And then finally, the uh, kachera, and this is an undergarment similar to boxer shorts, and it symbolizes keeping one's lust in check. Now, the, the Sikh, usually you can recognize them today as they generally wear turbans. So what ideal does one of the Kalasa seek to live up to? Well, this is what I found is a, kind of a code that they f- would follow. Kalasa is one who fights in the front ranks, is one who conquers the five evils, which are lust, anger, pride, greed, and ego. He is one who destroys doubt, is one who gives up ego, is one who does not stray from his spouse, is one who looks upon all as his own, and is one who attunes himself with God. So, like I said, I think that this would actually be a good model for a paladin being, again, a lawful good uh, warrior who seeks to protect and help the, the weak and those who cannot stand for themselves. Next is the monk class. And this actually fits in very well with a campaign set in India, as there are many Indian martial arts, some of which we only we know about mostly through folklore and historical records, but there are others that are still practiced today. First is Malayuda. Now, this is the oldest recorded martial art of India. It's primarily wrestling with some striking techniques. So, people would train in this art from a young age. And it's, there seemed to be a lot of respect for these fighters. Sometimes these wrestlers would engage in death matches as a way to settle arguments between different rulers or kingdoms. Now, there's four different styles that are in the Mala uh, Yuda. First is Hanumanti, and this focuses on technique. Next is Jambuvanti, and this focuses on submission. Next, Jarasandhi, which focuses on bone breaking. And then finally, Bimheseni, which focuses on raw power. Now, another one of the older martial arts is Mustiyuda. This is bare-knuckle boxing, though it could also incorporate knees, elbows, and kicks. Fighters were said to be toughen their hands to the point where they could use them to break coconuts. And there were many different types of fights they would engage in. Sometimes it would be one-on-one, but there were also times when they would gain a, they would engage in fights that were one against many, or sometimes even a group fight. Next is Salamum. And this is a weapon-based martial art. It focuses on the use of the staff, but it also used various bladed weapons, clubs, and whips. Now, the in this style, the staff is held more like a spear as opposed to the classical quarterstaff fighting we usually see in movies and TV shows. So you're holding the the staff by the uh, usually by one end, and that's to give you the maximum amount of range. So that can be helpful because you can translate your staff techniques into spear techniques. Now, study of this art also included the study of marmam, or vital points. Now, it's interesting to note that not only did they study pressure points on the human body, but they also studied pressure points on elephants, and mostly because those were used for training. So they found that if there were certain points where if they touched an elephant with a stick, it would become more compliant. Now, the belief in Marman has its roots in the Rig Veda, where the god Indra defeats a demon Vritra by striking a vital point with a lightning bolt. Next is Huyen Langlong, and this is from Manipur in northeast India. Again, it's primarily a weapon-based art. 
it was often a shield paired with a sword, axe, or spear. Now, they would practice ritual dances, similar to the kata, or forms performed in other martial arts. Some of these dances were believed to ward off evil spirits. So, I could see you making an interesting uh, prestige class or kid off of this, where, again, maybe one of these dances that they would do would act like a turn undead, or uh, maybe help protect an area from undead or spirits entering there. Now, unfortunately, this art does have a bit of a dark side. It was common for the winner of a fight between two practitioners of this style to decapitate the loser and take his head as a trophy. However, it was considered taboo to kill a fighter who either ran away or begged for mercy. Another one I found a little bit about was Mardani Kel. This is primarily a weapon, another weapon-based art that focused on fighting with two swords. Also another similar art, Squay, which is another weapon art that focuses on a use of a saber-like sword that could be either wielded on its own, with a shield, or in pairs. And finally, there is Kala Ripayuatu. And this is actually one of the oldest martial arts known to man. It is believed to have inspired other styles like karate, kung fu, and jujitsu, and is sometimes called the mother of all martial arts. Now, like Syllabom, practitioners of this art learn about pressure points for both the purpose of harming as well as healing. Now, some of the more aggressive uses of these pressure points were only taught to experienced students who had the correct temperament as a way to prevent them from misusing these skilled these skills. It is believed that a highly skilled practitioner of this art could kill or disable an opponent with pressure points. Well, next we move on to the rogue classes. Now, a thief can be a simple, common street criminal stealing to make ends meet. But there is another type of thief-like character that you could incorporate into the campaign, but unless you're doing an all-evil campaign, this might be better suited as an NPC. And that's the thuggy. Now, this is a ga- thuggies were gangs of professional robbers and killers which is why I think they're best suited as NPCs as as opposed to player characters. They would often join caravans and wait until they reached an isolated location before killing their victims. They often preyed on travelers because such folk could be gone for extended periods of time and this wouldn't raise as much suspicion. However, there were several types of people who would not be selected as victims. Women, the sick or disabled, religious aesthetics, members of the Sikh faith, elephant drivers, and those accompanied by cattle would be spared a thuggy's attack. Their preferred method of murder was strangulation, and this was because according to a law that was set during the 1500s, The only way a person could be sentenced to death for murder would be if they actually spilled the blood of the victim. So by strangling, they might be able to get away with imprisonment instead, since technically they didn't spill the victim's blood. It's also believed they may have used poisons to weaken or disorient their victims. Now it is debated, though, whether the thuggy were truly a religious cult, as some believe, or just simple common murderers. Some thugs did claim that they were descended from Kali, one of the goddesses we're going to be talking about later, and that they were created from her sweat. They believed that by killing people, they were pleasing Kali and preventing her from destroying all mankind. However, in, the, in a book called India Under Colonial Rule, 1700-1885, by Douglas Pears, 
the author mentions that many of the captured thugs were actually Muslim and not Hindu. And there's another theory that thuggy cults were actually an invention of British rulers, and that while they were certainly highwaymen, their deeds may have been exaggerated to make Indians seem like barbaric people in need of civilization that only the colonists could provide. Now, that, that theory is a kind of iffy, but, I mean, it, it, I could see it being possible because one of the unfortunate things is when we see uh, cultures come in contact with each other, sometimes one of the cultures, usually the one that's cons- that considers itself uh, more technologically advanced, believes that they're civilizing these people, even if they are enslaving them, uh, oppressing them, or in some cases even committing genocide on them. Like I said, it's a very sad thing that we've seen, not just in India, but other parts of the world as well. Most likely, though, they were simply men drawn to commit crime due to poverty with no religious motivation for their action. So, again, a thuggy would not necessarily be a Muslim or a Hindu. He could just be any religion. It's just that he had or no religion at all. It's just they had this specific method of killing that they preferred to use to kill their victims. Well, the other rogue class, the bards. Now, bards are actually very appropriate, as India does have a rich musical tradition, and there is a tradition called Kirtan, and this is found in Hinduism, Sikhism, and some branches of Buddhism. Usually it's done in a, it's a type of chant that is sometimes accompanied by music and dance. And of course, there could also be bards that would perform at uh, various religious ceremonies as well. Now, another option for rogue characters, maybe a little bit more appropriate for a bard than a thief, but I could see it being open to either class, would be street magic. As street magic has long been a popular form of entertainment in India. So you could very easily have a character who specializes in these types of uh, the stage magic, these non-magical illusions. This is also a good option for thieves. As I know in the second edition handbook, uh, they do mention that some thieving abilities, like pickpocket, can be used for sleight of hand, which can be very useful when performing these non-magical illusions. Another type of character you might find is a snake charmer. Now, this was a form of entertainment as well as livelihood. A snake charmer also could do other things to earn money. They were, would often serve as pest control experts, specifically for removing unwanted snakes from a home. And then, of course, they would have the option to, uh, you know, they might use these snakes in their, that they capture in their acts. They might also sell talismans or spells that were believed to protect against snake bites. Some people even believed that they possessed healing powers. It's also possible that they might get by by scavenging little trinkets or uh, useful items in their journeys and then try to sell them off at the markets where they performed. Now, as we move to the priestly classes, the druid... I don't think I'd recommend for a historical campaign for the same reason I usually don't recommend it for other settings in that it is, you know, the Druid character, the Druid class is primarily based on people that lived in Europe. So they don't always work if you take them out of that setting. Now, you could have it as a hermit that lives in the wilderness, but I don't think Druids, as presented in Dungeons & Dragons, would really be too common. Clerics, though, present their own unique challenge. Now, in theory, a cleric would need to be a member of the Brahmin caste. Though, Brahmins had a variety of duties. Their duties would often include studying, teaching, and performing rituals. There were some activities that they were forbidden from 
performing, such as engaging in the trade of weapons or performing tasks that were reserved for the lowest castes. However, they were per- permitted to serve as warriors if the need arose. So there, in that case, yes, an adventuring cleric could work in this type of a campaign. Wizards, again, in theory, they would need to be a Brahmin. Now, when I was doing my research, I couldn't really find any special type of wizardly characters in uh, Indian folklore. So you would probably want to follow the guidelines that were set in the second edition historical compendiums. Usually they, they would recommend that if you are going to allow wizards, you want to limit what spells they're going to use. You know, I mean, of course, if you want to allow them to be walking around casting fireballs and lightning bolts, you certainly could, but usually it's best to have them focus on spells that are more subtle. Now, as we move to weapons and armor, there are several types of weapons that are unique to India. There is the Kanda, and this is a straight broadsword that had a spike on the pommel. Now, the spike actually served two purposes. You could use it as a weapon, or you could use it to grip the sword with both hands. Probably one of the most famous Indian weapons is the Chakram. We often see it in video games and uh, some role-playing games. And this was a throwing disc. Users would often carry several of them on their left arm, and they would throw them by twirling them on their right index finger, and then with a flick of a wrist would throw it. And historical records say that they could easily slice through an arm or a leg. And I remember watching a video, again while I was doing my research, where they showed one expert in the use of this weapon actually uh, showing them knocking down sugarcane poles. Another very interesting weapon we see in uh, Indian history is the Urumi, and this is a sword made from flexible steel, similar to the type of the steel you'd see in a clock gear, and or a clock spring. So a very again very flexible, very springy, and this sword was actually used like a whip. Now the sword had to be kept in constant motion so the user wouldn't hurt himself. And according to one legend, there was a warrior who was able to use this. Uh, sword to kill nine people at once. Another famous Indian weapon is the katar, the, or some people call them the punch dagger. Uh, and they could actually be used in a variety of ways, either singly, you could use two of them at once, or sometimes they were used with a shield. Now, one of the things that makes the katar such an efficient and deadly weapon is it's used a lot like punching. And this allowed the user to put his full weight behind the blow. Also, the H-shaped handle, the side of the weapon, could be used to parry or blocks attack, or parry and block attacks. Later, after the introduction of firearms, some Qatar were built to have, or they were built with a small pistol, a single-shot pistol, inside the handle. So after you stab someone with it, you could pull the trigger and shoot them as well. Another type of weapon is the maru, and this is similar to a Hawaiian double dagger, but it's made from deer horns. Some variations, though, were made from steel, and some even did have a small steel shield uh, that was built into it. Probably the best example I can think of, even though it's not an Indian film, uh, if you've ever seen the movie Braveheart, the character that I think it was Tommy Flanagan played... Uh, he had one of those weapons that, it was similar, it was a small shield that covered the hand and had a couple blades. At least I'm pretty sure that's where I saw it. It's been a while since I've seen that movie. Another famous Indian sword is the Talwar. And this is a curved sword, very similar to a saber. So honestly, you actually have a lot of different weapons that would have seen use in India, about the only weapons I really couldn't find any evidence of were dedicated two-handed swords. There may have been, you know, large swords like that in India, but I wasn't able to find any specific information on them.
However, a lot of your common D&D weapons, long swords, short swords, daggers, knives, maces, uh, battle axes, all saw use in India at one time or another. They did, of course, use bows as well, and usually their bows were made of bamboo, and the reason why is because that would be a little more uh, tolerant to the humid climate in some parts of the, the country. Now, as far as armor, shields, of course, were very important, and there's a lot of different types of shields that were used in ancient India. Uh, everything from small, round shields like a buckler to tall, long wall shields. Most forms of armor are permissible. About the only thing I couldn't really find any evidence of was plate armor like, you know, plate mail that you would see a European knight wear. Some of the most common armor was probably similar to brigadine. There was a type of armor called the coat of 10,000 nails. Padded leather with steel sheets covered that, that covered the torso, arms, and upper thigh. And the armor was split at the waist so the wearer could use it to ride a horse without any interference. They also used lamellar armor, and this is armor made from rectangular plates usually made of leather or metal that were laced into rolls. Chain mail and scale mail were both in use here as well. And a well-armored warrior might have mail and chain armor. So this is chain mail that has steel plates reinforcing the chest and abdomen. Another type of armor was mirror armor. And this is a breastplate com usually combined with helmet, bracers, greaves, and sometimes, if you could afford it, a suit of chainmail underneath. So that would probably be the closest to uh, plate mail that we would find in an Indian setting. There's a wide variety of monsters from Hindu mythology and Indian folklore you could use. Some of them are already have stats in D&D, though they're not necessarily the same as they were pictured in Indian folklore. Probably one of the most well-known is the Rakasha, and they off now in D and D. They're usually appeared. They appear like uh, tiger or cat-like humanoids. In folklore, they didn't necessarily have to have feline appearances, but they did often look like beastal humans with large fangs. They were similar to vampires in a way. They were said to need to drink blood, and they could fly, turn invisible changed shape, and were sometimes said to be skilled magicians. However, they weren't always evil. There's two Rakashas that play prominent roles in the Indian epic, the Ramayana. Now, in this tale, the hero Rama must rescue his wife Sita from Ravana, the king of the Rakasha. Now, Ravana was definitely evil. However, he had a brother named Vibhishana, who was actually very noble and said to be very beautiful in appearance. So he helped Rama and served as his advisor. And as I recall, there was one scene where uh, several Rakasha were trying to enter Rama's camp, and Vibhishana used his magic to make them visible so they couldn't sneak up on them. Indian folklore also has were-tigers, again another creature that we see in D&D, as well as nagas. So, nagas often appeared as large snakes, but some legends claim they could assume human form. They were often associated with bodies of water and could also be guardians of treasure. There's also a race that you might consider letting players have the opportunity to take this race, but you're probably going to need to find some uh, ways to balance them out. And that are that's the Venara. So this is a race of people who lived in the forests and were said to have had supernatural powers. In art, they're often depicted as looking like monkeys, though it is possible this may have just been artistic license. The most notable of the Venara is... Hanuman, 
and he assists Rama in the Ramayana. Now, he was said to be able to change his shape, and not only that, he was also very strong. In the Ramayana, he needs to find an herb to heal Rama's brother, Lakshamana. So, he leaps to the Himalayas, where he finds the mountain where this, this herb grows. However, there's a lot of herbs there, so, and he doesn't know which one he has to take. So, what does he do? He picks up the mountain and carries it back. So, you would have to be pretty strong to do that. There's also some other interesting creatures. Uh, the There is the Skolex, or Indus worm. And this is described in Greek writings. It's a large white worm with teeth that was said to have lived in the Indus River. Supposedly, people hunted it in order to collect a flammable substance. So, I could see them being similar to... Okay, the name of the creature escaped my mind. Escapes my mind right now. Um, they're they're pictured as living in the Arctic, and they do have again this hot acidic blood that, uh, when you cut it, it can squirt out this uh, this blood to uh, cause burns. So I know there's someone out there who is probably uh, yelling that the name of that creature at the their MP3 player right now. I know it's not the Anakeg. I think it might be the Ramirez. I'm not sure, but that's what it kind of reminded me of when, again, it was said that uh, people would hunt it in order to harvest this flammable substance and then use that as a weapon. Greek writers also tell stories of ants that can range in size from a bear to a dog. There was also a type of ant called the gold-digging ant, which was described as a furry ant that dug up gold. Though it's possible that the gold-digging ant was merely a Himalayan marmont, a rodent-like creature that was misidentified. There are also other types of giant insects that we see in uh, Hindu mythology, so you know, giant spiders or giant scorpions wouldn't be out of the question. And there's also creatures similar to mermaids and mermen. Now, usually when I do my historical gaming episodes, I like to talk a bit about some of the gods that may have been worshipped in these cultures, as usually we don't find much information about them in the D&D books. Uh, though we don't have to worry about that for uh, running an Indian campaign, because the uh, I know the legends and lore and the deities and demigods from 1st and 2nd edition both did have information on many of the Hindu deities. Now, I don't think they always necessarily translated very well to Dungeons & Dragons, but there's three that are very important in Hinduism. They're called the Trimurti, the Trinity. First is Brahma, the Creator. He's often pictured with four arms and four faces, which represent the four Vedas and the four directions. Now, unlike many Hindu deities, Brahma is generally not pictured holding weapons, but rather symbols of creation, which include the Vedas, beads, which represent time, a ladle that is used to feed the sacred fire, and a utensil that holds the waters of creation. Next is Vishnu, the preserver. He's often pictured as having blue skin, and he carries a mace, a disc-like weapon, a conch shell, and a lotus flower. He was said to have had ten avatars that came to to aid humanity when the need arose. And there are some some Hindus that believe that the Buddha was one of uh, Vishnu's ten avatars, and I think there's even some that think that Jesus was actually also one of uh, uh, Vishnu's avatars as well. The final member of the Trinity is Shiva, the Destroyer. Now, if you're a fan of the Final Fantasy games, you recognize the name Shiva. In those games, Shiva's usually pictured as a female and associated with ice. In Hinduism, 
Shiva is shown as holding a trident, axe, drum, and a deer. Now, one thing about Shiva, again, you, you notice that his name is the Destroyer. So, you might think that would make him evil. However, this is where I think sometimes the Hindu deities don't really translate very well into Dungeons and Dragons. Because it would probably be better to think of Shiva not as a destroyer, but a transformer. Because, again, he's not really a god of wanton, senseless destruction. He's a god of transformation. And sometimes he's covered in ash as a reminder that all things are fated to end. Well, finally, I'd like to talk a little bit about Kali. And in 2nd edition and 1st edition, and I'm sure the other versions of D&D that have a Legends and Lore supplement, they picture her, her as being chaotic evil. However, I don't necessarily think I would place her as chaotic evil. Now, whoa, 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 wait a second. I think I heard some of you out there saying, But Al, I've seen Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, and I just paused the show and I did an image search of Kali. She's black. She carries a severed head. She wears a necklace of skulls and has a long tongue. How can she be anything but chaotic evil? Well, let me explain. And I think a lot of it really has to do with Western perceptions. These aren't necessarily in agreement with the way that uh, Eastern perceptions would have viewed Kali. Now, there are stories of her, though, battling demons or monsters that other gods couldn't handle. And this is one of the reasons why she's sometimes pictured with her tongue sticking out. There's a tale of one demon she fought that could duplicate itself if a drop of its blood hit the ground. So Kali used her tongue to catch the blood so the demon couldn't reproduce itself. She's also said to protect her devotees from misfortune and grant liberation from the cycle of rebirth. So that's actually why she's often shown as carrying a sword in a severed head. The sword represents divine wisdom, and the head represents ego, which must be removed in order to escape samsara. Well, the skulls, those represent the eventual fate of everything. Because one of the translations, or possible translations of her name, means something to the effect of fullness of time. There was a Hindu that I heard speak on the topic when I was doing my research. There was a video I found where uh, there was a Hindu that was talking about Kali. And he he actually had a very interesting explanation for why he... thinks uh, Kali has such a fearsome appearance. And that's because since she does represent time, she doesn't have to be pleasant looking. She can be truthful. She has seen empires rise and empires fall. And she doesn't care if she scares us because that's just the way things are. So it's almost seen her very honest, I thought anyway, a very honest uh, light. So, like I said, I don't necessarily think that she's chaotic evil, and I don't really think she belongs in the Abyss, because that's where they put her in uh, in 1st edition, and I think the other editions as well. Well, there you have it. Uh, some ideas, I hope that, you know, if you ever are going to run a campaign in historical India, or, as I said, maybe if you're creating a new game world, and you want to uh, make a country or a nation that has an Indian flavor to it, hopefully they've given you some ideas. And, and if they haven't, well, I hope you at least found them interesting. So with that said, I'd like to thank you for listening, and have a good evening, or morning, or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at 
POI Game Studio. Do you do a podcast about Dungeons and Dragons, role playing games, video games, or other topics of geek interest? Would you like to cross promote your podcast on geekery in general? Then drop us a line on our Facebook page at POI Game Studio or POI Network, or contact us through our website at POIGamestudio.com and we'll set something up.